Okay, so uh, I'm going to read the first few verses. Um, I'm actually going to read just from verse 4, the book of Jonah. So Jonah is running from the Lord. The Lord said, go and tell people who are racially and religiously different to you about the gospel of Jesus. But like a good American, uh, Jonah put politics before religion. And uh, he, he said, I'm not going to do that. And verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, the only Christian on board, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What's going on? What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. I'm sure he was holding on to like one of the pillars in the boat that was rocking. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay, so week one, we looked at Jonah the fugitive. Uh, week two, Jonah in the storm. Uh, this week, we're looking at Jonah the sleeper. Here we go. Twice in the book of Jonah, Jonah finds himself up close and personal with people who are racially and religiously different to him. Please could you say, racially and religiously different to me. In, I'm talking about the sailors here and the citizens of Nineveh in a couple of chapters' time. In both instances, the non-Christians, the ones who don't know the true God, outshine Jonah by a mile. They behave more morally, more ethically, in a more God-pleasing manner. We see the sailors being terrified. That's a whole lot better than Jonah who was asleep. So the sailors were engaged. Jonah was disengaged. He had checked out. The sailors were seeking the common good. And Jonah is absorbed with his own problems. And the sailors are bringing their spirituality to bear. What misguided prayers they were praying. At least they were bringing the spirituality they had to bear on the situation. And our boy Jonah was not even praying. What do we learn from this little encounter between Jonah and the, the sea captain? And we're going to plunge right into application. Today is heavy on application because the text is heavy on application. The text is wake up and start acting. What do we learn? Well, firstly, we learn about the importance of respect for common grace. So there's common grace and then there's special grace, isn't there? Or saving grace and Special or saving grace is unique to believers. If you're a believer here today, you are saved. You are made right with God because of the grace of God. Now, a quick aside, because we're saved by the grace of God, we're not spiritually superior or uh, holier than thou towards people who aren't saved by the grace of God because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. We've got nothing to be superior about, only to exalt in the grace of God. But special grace or saving grace, unique to Christians. Then there's, and that makes us saved, it doesn't make us better. 
Then there's common grace, what theologians call common grace, and that's God's kindness across humankind on people of all different religions and races. There will be goodness from God across people of all different races and religions because of common grace. You think of God's wisdom. It's not exclusively found amongst Christians. Abilities that God gives across the board. Moral insight across the board. We don't hold the corner on moral insight as Christians. And we see that in the sailors. They've got their, their seafaring talents, God-given seafaring abilities being put to work to trade, which is good. And now right here, put to work to try and save the ship. And next week, we'll see outstanding morality from these pagan mariners. The interest they show in Jonah, a man of another religion, another race. It's remarkable interest. And then they don't want to throw him overboard. You might have in your mind a picture of sort of thuggish pagans swinging him with, see how far they can throw him into the waters. Nothing of that. They are really nice. It's a last resort throwing Jonah overboard. These people who know nothing of the one true God. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We look around, don't we? We see some of the finest artistic endeavors in the world. Christians had nothing to do with it. We see some of the finest technological breakthroughs. There's not a Christian within a mile of how that tech breakthrough happened. We think of some of the political leadership, humanitarian leadership that the world's had, some of the finest leadership, most moral, ethical, and I believe God-pleasing, has come from people who wouldn't profess to be Christ followers. I know Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela, at least I've read so much on both of those two leaders, neither of them professed, according to all my reading, professed to be Christ followers. But God used them mightily. You think of how God used Mandela in the area of forgiveness. Massive forgiveness. Yet he doesn't claim that any significant part of that was driven by the example of Christ. He might mention that every now and again. But he, he, never, he never attributed it to the example of Christ. That, that is common grace. The ability to forgive outside of knowing Jesus. Common grace. So what do we do with that? Well, four quick points of application. Let's be respectful and appreciative towards non-Christians. Right? I, I find that if, if we lose, if we underplay, if we under-acknowledge common grace, we can just think we're a bit better than them. And it's all a bit silly. <laughs> I don't think it's pleasing to God. Respect and appreciate non-Christians. Remember that special grace makes us save, not necessarily better than others. And secondly, we can support non-Christian endeavors because common grace enables non-Christians to line up with the Bible in some areas. And when they do, I think we join right in. So, a little while ago, I was marching for something very biblical. But I was marching with an organization 
who wouldn't speak of themselves as biblical, and I would certainly not call them biblical. But their common grace and my common grace or special grace coincided, and we were able to march together. I'm thinking in a year's time I'll be marching against that same organization on other things, because this book is my Lord. That trumps anything else. And respect for common grace, when they're into that, we join in wholeheartedly, I think. Uh, number three, let's be thoughtful about some of the cliches, oft-used expressions that we can use about the church in America. It doesn't mean we can't use them, but it means let's just be thoughtful and nuanced about them. So here's one. Uh, I just want to get this right. The church... Oh, the only hope for America is the church. Well, that's absolutely true in one sense, isn't it? Because the church, we hold out the gospel. Every American needs the gospel. To, to be eternally right with God, you need the gospel. So in that sense, the church is certainly the only true, ultimate, eternal hope for America. But it's not true in the sense that we hold the monopoly on how to run a country well. We've already mentioned great political leaders who haven't known God at all. God has used them to run countries well. So we need to be thoughtful about that, that phrase. We need common grace of God in all different communities to arise. So that's why when we pray for America and our cities, we don't just pray for our church and other churches. We pray, God, may common grace arise. Please, God, common grace. Help us believers who have common grace and special grace to do our part, but more common grace, God. Uh, here's another one. We must have a Christian in the White House. Well, it'd be lovely. It's a good sentiment. But I just want to check it's not driven by a lack of appreciation for common grace. Because we can have a great leader who doesn't know God, who, who, who does a lot of good for this nation. And conversely, you can have a Christian who's actually quite weak and doesn't help the nation too much. So who's our hope in all the time? You thought, are you getting a theme here? God. He's the giver of all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. Whether it's via the church or via other groups other than the church. And then finally, let's be thoughtful concerning how we think about politics. I've been told politics is the third rail when I arrived in America. I said just one tip, never talk about politics. It's the third rail. That's the electrocution rail. You know, you touch it, you get zapped. And of course, we don't believe that. We want the lordship of Jesus in every area of life. We need to talk about these things, even areas that are a bit controversial. The Lord will help us. As we think about politics, how does acknowledgement of common grace help us? Well, it tells us that there's going to be good things from the Lord on both sides of the aisle. That's common grace. And the truth of human depravity tells us that there's going to be bad things on both sides of the aisle. Now then, I would suggest as we approach elections, I think we're 100 days out, 98 days out from the elections, I would encourage us as citizens and Christ followers to vote. I'd encourage you, pick a party and vote. But I would encourage us, encourage us not to think and maybe to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm voting there, obviously. I would encourage us to think and say, 
well, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Lord, and the Bible is the highest authority in my life. So it's actually quite difficult, quite difficult for me as I approach this election, because common grace tells me there's good on both sides of the aisle. Human depravity tells me there's bad on both sides of the aisle. So I'm going to have to work through which direction I think is more biblical to vote. But we stop short of saying, this is the Christian side of the aisle. Or that's the Christian side of the aisle. Common grace helps us with that. Human depravity helps us with that. I would say, pick your side. But there's nuance there. Because Jesus is our Lord. Not any political party. Okay, have I got electrocuted or am I good to continue? Uh, second half of this message, what's the other big thing we can learn from the book of or Jonah in this instance? I think it's to mobilize for the common good. Common grace, now we're talking about the common good. So the pagan, non-Christian captain, he comes down into the bowels of the ship and says, what are you doing? We're in big trouble, have you not noticed? And can, can you not even pray to your God? Why are you not bringing the resources of your faith to bear on the common good and the crisis we have on our boat? That's a bit humbling, isn't it, all of this? I've had a humbling week as a, a leader in the church of God. I've taken blows on the chin, uh, which I think I deserve and we deserve from the sea captain. Usually, often we could say, God uses believers, just wave your hand if you're a believer, yeah. God uses believers to point unbelievers to God. Sometimes God uses unbelievers to point believers to God. And when he uses them, we listen like it's God himself speaking because it probably is. There's an echo in this little encounter of uh, Matthew 5.16, isn't there? When Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> outdoors, <laughs> and Jesus said, you know what? They will see your good deeds and worship the Father in heaven. Implication, if the world is not seeing our good deeds, they're not going to worship our Father in heaven. Follow-up implication, they seem to have biblical license along with this pagan ship's captain to call us out if we're not doing good works. So you and me individually and us collectively as Monument Church, it's very important we do good works. And for you individually and me individually as a Christ follower, it is absolutely essential that we do. Because the book of James, chapter 2, pulls no punches. It says, faith without works is? With, it, it's what? That means it's not alive. And the Bible speaks of things that look alive but are actually not alive. Like faith without works. Until you realize that there's no works and therefore it's dead, you think it's alive. Jesus said something similar. 
He said, many will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't do what I've told them to do. And they don't find a place in the kingdom of God. So when it comes to listening to the sea captain, it's vital for our collective witness, our individual witness, and it's vital for the integrity of our individual and corporate salvation. It's absolutely essential. So what is the application here? Well, I've written down a Waco sleeper, all hands on deck. We are all on the same American boat and need to pull all common grace and all special grace resources to avoid shipwreck. What does waking up mean? Well, I'll look at a couple of uh, current areas in a moment. But I think bigger picture, if there was really one thing for us to take home, and I've already alluded this to this a bit, it would be for us to think biblically. Could you say biblically? More than. That means higher than. Individually or politically. So biblically, individually, politically. This, this one's higher. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I'm back on this pluck of common grace and common good. I've noticed that I think it's because of common grace, every culture in the world seems to have unique graces from God. Would you agree with that? And every culture has unique depravities because of human depravity. So let's talk about the British, shall we? Because I'm British. Um, Common grace... A unique grace of the British people, which is a result of common grace, I think, is persistence or perseverance. The Brits are a very hardy people. They put up with trial and difficulty, I think, better than we do this side of the Atlantic. They're just more robust. That's from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father of lights. He's just blessed the Brits with persistence, perseverance. And uh, what about unique uh, depravities amongst the British people? Well, I don't think there are any, really. (laughs) Which is just the problem. Our British big problem is superiority. I don't know how it came in to our culture, but it's it's everywhere. It's like in our DNA, our fallen DNA. Maybe it's come from too many years of rule Britannia and all that. I mean, you you, you all know about that. When you kicked us out 250 years ago, (laughs) we thought you would do terribly as that country, that new America. We didn't think it would succeed. And here we are 250 years later, 50 states later, 350 million people later, British superiority has been exposed and defied. And then about half the world are honor-shame cultures. Huge swathes of the world, honor-shame culture. What would the unique graces be? I've noticed respect. Honor-shame cultures are so good at honoring. What's the, what's the depravity? They can slip into manipulation, anything to avoid shame. And what about Americans? Well, I could pick on many graces. I think positivity I mean, profound positivity is a grace from God. What about depravities? I think there's two that come in first equal. Individualism. So we've got the Bible, then we've got unhealthy individualism, and we've got politicization, over-politicization. I think those two contend for first place as the depraved component of American culture. America's got that little word me in it, hasn't it? A-me-rica. There's a clue there. 
The number of times I've been told, but PJ, you've got to understand, Americans don't like being told what to do. And at that moment, we throw the Bible out. We go, yeah, individualism. I mean, I'll agree with the Bible on other things, but when it comes to not being told what to do, I really like some pages in this book, and I don't like other pages in this book. And, enough. Politicization, that's the national religion from what I've seen. I've lived here nearly four years. National religion of America is politics. It's in everything. Politicization. Now, what do we do with, what do we do with these graces and these depravities? Well, what I think I need to do as a British person and we as fellow Americans and whatever, we need to kind of write on our forearm, I am especially prone to unhealthy individualism and I am especially prone to over-politicize things. Then we need to put on our other, and for other cultures it would be whatever their depravities are. They're our idols, they're our blind spots. That's when we demote scripture. And then on the other arm we put, I must really remember to be biblical more than that and that. So we need to go into life aware of our graces and our depravities. And that will help us. Now, all of this is rather painful, isn't it? This whole wake-up sleeper thing is rather painful. Uh, when, sometimes when I wake my sons up, have over the years, um, if one of them particularly doesn't much like being woken up, and he sometimes lashes out. It's uncomfortable being told to wake up. Depravities, common graces, more biblical than individual or politics. Let's try and apply these things to the two major current things in our nation. I know elections, I've mentioned that, uh, but to COVID and race. COVID, what does the Bible say? Well, it doesn't go into detail, but it does give us, gives us some very helpful things. The first thing it says is, is obey authorities. So individually and collectively, our leaning is to obey our authorities. There's nuance there. If they're telling us to do something that's anti-biblical and wrong, we would resist that. But we don't get all het up immediately. We understand that this is a tricky time in our nation. So we're not picking fights. With the lean, our bias is to obey authorities. Secondly, big theme in scripture, second commandment is love, love God and love your neighbor. So we think about that. We think, what does it mean to love our neighbor at this time? That's a, that's a strong bias. Before, before putting in me, individualism, or collective belief politics, before exalting them, we, we go, no, what does the Bible say about, oh, love my neighbor, okay. But that may interfere with individualism, yes. It may interfere with my politics, yes. But that's what the Bible says, so that's where we lean. Thirdly, big theme in scripture is we don't allow our freedom, thank God for freedom, we don't allow our freedom in different areas to sear the conscience of people who are less free in that area. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Monument. In our collective here and up in Frederick, we've got people who are very sensitive about COVID and people who are very robust about COVID. And those who are more robust are kindly, graciously saying, hey, I don't want my robustness to be a cause of concern for you. Which brings us to the last one. Big theme in scripture. So thank you so much for that. That's just how it should be. Big theme in scripture is we give up 
personal preferences for the sake of being a good witness. As to the watching world, and it's really difficult being a white evangelical at the moment, isn't it? Because white evangelicals, we've done some really dumb stuff in the nation in the last 50 years. And so people who don't understand everything about what's good and what isn't, they hear I'm a white evangelical. I was chatting to a friend, uh, Mike, non-Christian. He said, describe again monument. I said, well, we're, we're sort of like an evangelical church. And he could see I'm white. And, he said, and then he just went on a little polite rant like the sea captain to me. This was just a few days ago in the park. We're friends because our dogs are friends, if, if you can believe that. And he just went off saying, well, how do you reconcile your beliefs on this and not caring and not loving your neighbor and not that? And I thought, oh, no, we may have to ditch this phrase, white evangelical, altogether. The point is, any opportunity we can take to be a good witness, it's a, it's a good thing to do, right? So those are our leanings. It doesn't answer every detail, but we're saying, this book... You, your word, teach us in this time. Teach us how to be on the boat in the storm. I know it's nice just to go doo-doos, but we can't. We need to awake. Awaken with this as preeminent. And then race. Well, a few quick things. Basic Christian kindness. Weep with those who weep. You don't have to understand everything immediately, but the Bible says weep with those who weep. Weep. Not tick them off for weeping. Not explain why you're not weeping. Not explain why they shouldn't be weeping. Basic Christian kindness, everybody. That's where we start. We don't start like this. We start, oh no, you're weeping. You're, you're still weeping? Wow. Your parents wept? I, I, I thought this was sorted out with your grandparents. You, you're weeping. Well, that's where we start. I want to weep with those who weep. Why are you weeping? I'll weep better with you if I understand why you're weeping. That's where we start. Then we work for equality. Huge theme here is equality. It comes from creation. All made in the image of God. Every person, every color made in the image of God. As Christians, we've got bigger, well, not bigger, we've got more motivations. One new man in Christ. We've got consummation It's going to be in heaven, every tribe and every tongue. But we start with this huge one, which we can share with people who don't share a Christian faith of, per se, is that all people are created equal in the image of God. And if we put up the frontier of a big cross, remember we've got a big cross, Frank made it for us, and imagine we put a crucified Jesus on it, and we put it up here, and some people came and started spray painting it and cutting it and defacing it, we would probably be up in arms about that. They're defiling the image of God. They're not honoring the image of God. And black and brown and white and so on. All in the image of God. So we work to honor. That's our starting point. It doesn't get us into squabbles. We're caring. We're weeping. We're honoring. And just to update you on where we're at as a church, we've just started to give monthly to two racial justice organizations. Check out our homepage on our website. I'm so sorry. I thought of doing, I know it sounds lame now, I thought of doing this when we started Monument 18 months ago. We're only doing it now, but we're doing it. We support Brown Station Elementary School in finance and practical help. That's a ma mainly black and brown community. 
We support women who care ministries, who care for women, children, and men who are in trouble. And just on that, we help between... It's an inconvenient time. Could you all please say inconvenient? We help between 9 and 11 on a Friday morning. Uh, we need more help. There's been a group of about 10 of us helping there for three or four months, and we're just, we just need more people so we can spread it out, maybe do one Friday a month. I know it's an inconvenient time, but leveling the playing field of inequality and weeping with those who weep and basic Christian kindness is inconvenient. So please, we need about 10 more people. Uh, if, you could, if you could possibly help, take time off, do something, I'm not sure. But 9 to 11 on a Friday morning, if you're able to be rostered on, uh, please let Beth know or email info at Monument Church. Thank you. And as we come into land, um, we're also just wanting to try and <laughs> get our own house in order more. We're not trying to become a multi-ethnic church. We are already one. We have been from the get-go, but we're trying to keep doing better and keep the conversation going. So to this end, you'll see on your handout, we've got a few questions. They're all really from a lead question of, of um, where does racial injustice, bias, or misunderstanding affect Monument Church? In terms of thoughts, words, actions, you can read. There's some helpful little verbiage there. Please let Catherine Martin know or email info at, at uh, Monument Church. We've got some groups who are going to be talking around these things in the weeks ahead and would love your input. Friends, in closing, uh, I've been convicted about prayer. I love the way we pray as a church. It's real value. But it's interesting that the sea captain said to the, the church, at least pray. <laughs> and I think uh, we've got space to grow in praying for our cities and our nation. And similar in Jeremiah 29, the command from the Lord was to seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. So we're going we're gonna to have a web page that keeps us current with things we can pray for for our city, cities, towns and nation. And that'll help us pray. We'll be able to get it out to us individually in groups and when we gather for prayer and fasting and so on. But I'm really just saying we're going to add another, uh, add another string to our bow of prayer, which is more prayer uh, for our towns and our nations, for the, for the common good. My dear friends, I've, uh, as I said, I've, I just felt I've had to take some things on the chin from this sea captain this week. I think we do as a church. I'm so encouraged by so much, but to have, have the Lord speaking to us and provoking us and stirring us on our way, I, I do help, hope this has been helpful uh, to you. I do hope you're not feeling offense. If you do, please don't shoot the messenger. This is so imperative. Faith without works is dead. Jesus said they will see your good deeds and worship our Father in heaven. And I know I've just scratched the surface on a couple of these current issues, but uh, I think there's some principles here that will help us in this season with these issues and as we move towards the election at the end of the year, and beyond that, the generations ahead of us, that we would dip into special grace from God, common grace from God, and we would work for the common good with the power that God gives us.